Never before has there been so much information available about how to educate and parent well. There's powerful and compelling research that seems to come out every week about how to help children and adolescents so they mature and develop into the successful and happy people we want them to be. The challenge is, amidst all this news, how do you find the gems? Enter Jess Leahy. Jess is a talented and experienced teacher. She's a parent of two. And through her articles for The Atlantic and The New York Times, she is becoming a voice of advice and sensibility for a generation of parents and educators. Her article about why children must be allowed and encouraged to fail became a sensation, shared over a 100,000 times over social media, seeding the way for a book on the topic scheduled for release in 2015. Can you tell us a little bit about why you see failure as a gift that parents and teachers can give to students? Well, I think that the story of that is, is just the story of the book. You know, I, I was teaching middle school and I've taught high school for, you know, 10 years. And I started to see a lot of kids in my classroom that really needed to have their hands held, needed minute by minute, blow by blow instructions on how to do everything. And the minute they uh, couldn't get it right the first time, they would throw their hands up and give up and start to moan and whine and cry. And the thing for me was that I had to start thinking about how I might be complicit in that as well. I have two kids right now, they're 15 and 10. This was a couple of years ago that I sort of realized this. But there was no way as a writer to articulate that in an article because we're not really allowed to write about our own students. I can't write about, you know, the fact that my parent, my students' parents are overparenting and here's how with specific examples. I just can't do that. Um, and then this article came out of Queen, University of Queensland, the article that I based, the Atlantic article, Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail on. And that article had quotes from guidance counselors and other school professionals that were quoted in the study. And so they were quotes I could have written myself. They could have been mine. In fact, the admissions director of my school said, are you sure that these aren't our students that you're talking about? And I said, I swear, no, this is from the article. So um, I was able to use those quotes and get the point across with those quotes and talk about what that study was articulating, but in a very personal way. So I was looking at it both from a teaching perspective, how do I help these kids better deal with setbacks? And how do I do the same thing with my own parenting? How do I not raise kids who are um, just paralyzed by the idea of failing and paralyzed by the idea of uh, not getting things right the first time? So the willingness to take risks is something that clearly you believe can be taught. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What are some of the things, both as a parent and as an educator, that, that you've used in order to help children take these risks? Well, I mean, there's the obvious starting place for that is just to talk about Carol Dweck and to talk about growth mindset. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's much in the media these days, but I think, you know, we can't, we really can't talk about it enough. I think when it comes to talking to my kids about what they're doing well, I really try to focus on the effort that they put into things um, to the point where my 15-year-old mocks me on a fairly regular basis. He's, he's completely familiar with what I'm doing. He's smart enough to see behind the curtain. He knows what Oz is up to. Um, but where with students as well, um, currently right now I'm not teaching middle school. I, uh, I had to take some time off while I was writing the book. So I'm only teaching part-time and I'm teaching a group of kids who have had a lot of things go wrong in their lives and they've had 
a lot of setbacks and there is a lot of fear. And so it just doesn't seem, it didn't seem right for me to praise my students for being smart or being talented. They're hearing that all the time from their parents. Uh, praising my students for, you know, the effort that they put into this problem set that clearly was giving them fits and yet they didn't give up and they kept trying. And that idea that intelligence is malleable, that we aren't born with the end product of all of the work of our lives, that we grow into our intelligence and we grow our intelligence the harder we work. That all seemed to make a lot of sense to me. Um, it's they're used to being told that they're smart and creative and genius and talented and brilliant and wonderful and hung the moon and the stars and the sky. And so it's, you know, I'm used to saying those things and, and it's hard for me to break. It's hard for me to break that habit. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think they are receptive to that when they know that what I value is hard work and not an end result. They're a lot more willing to put some, um, to take some risks with that, uh, product as opposed to worrying so much about what the end result is going to look like. And in a nutshell, Jess, what really stands out to you from the research you've done about the advantages that a person who's willing to take risks and fail has over one who's not? My very favorite study about that um, comes from Wendy Grolnick out of Clark University. She fantastic books, one that academic called um, The Psychology of Parental Control, and then one called Pressured Parents, Anxious Kids, or Anxious Parents, Precious Pressured Kids, I can't remember which one. It's behind me in that bookshelf over there. I'd have to look. <laughs> um, she's fantastic, and she did some really interesting studies on the effects that controlling or directive parenting, I, I use different um, descriptors depending on the audience I'm talking to. Controlling doesn't tend to go over very well with parents or directive parenting is better. Um, when she took a bunch of one-year-olds and she uh, brought those parents in and had the parents sit around while the kids played, that she gave these very general directions. She said, be with your child while they play or sit with your child while they play. And some of the parents were able to sit back and watch their child play and then give them little prompts when they would get stuck or frustrated. Um, some of the other parents uh, ha really would say, no, 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 play with it this way, do this with the blocks, no, try it this way, and really directed their play. And then what was really interesting after that is Wendy Grolnick and her, uh, her um, the people in her lab classified those parents into different groups. Were they autonomy supportive or were they directive and controlling? And then they took those babies the next time they came in and they, she separated them from the mothers. Uh, it happened to be mother-child pairs. And she gave the babies a task, and, and for the life of me, I can't imagine what task you give a one-year-old, but she gave the one-year-olds a task. And the children who had had the directive controlling parents would get frustrated and quit. They just couldn't move forward with the task. And the kids of the autonomy supportive mothers were able to work through their frustration and continue with the task until its end. And the word Wendy Grolnick uses when she talks about these findings is striking. She said it was striking the difference between the autonomy supportive children, the children of autonomy supportive mothers and the children of directive mothers. Extrapolate that out to high school, middle school, and what you have are kids who screw up and get so frustrated the first time they mess up that they are paralyzed. They can't move forward. And I've seen that happen. I've seen kids get stuck on a question on a test that they can't finish 
and be unable to move on and finish the test and get zeros on 15 questions because they couldn't move past number 14. As opposed to the kids who are used to saying, okay, that didn't work. Where in me can I find the resources or the creativity or the innovation to go on and, and figure out what could come next? When, we, when you were talking about leadership with me, one of the things I thought about was that I work with the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship here in, well, in Boston. And one of the things the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship does is teach future leaders in service. One of the things we look at when we, ha when we uh, do selection for the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship are who are the people who might not necessarily go out that first time and succeed, but who can learn the most from going out in the community, possibly making a lot of mistakes, and then, you know, uh, failing miserably and going on to become a fellow for life who can teach younger fellows. So I'm really on board with this idea of kids from a very young age being taught that the product isn't always the goal. The the learning is the goal and the effort is the goal and the striving is the goal and the learning from all of those things has to be the goal. Again, one of the things that at the GCLI with our focus on developing leadership and equipping teachers with the skills, one of the themes that comes up strongly is how do we help young people develop empathy? And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the research that you found on that topic. I've been working lately a lot with the, uh, the Making Caring Common project. There's a, the person who runs that, Richard Weisbord, wrote a, a book called The Parents We Want to Be or The Parents We'd Like to Be. And the Making Caring Co Common project is trying to do exactly what you're talking about, make empathy and caring something that students care about. And this, I, this article I just wrote was about the fact that they looked at a whole bunch of kids and found that 80% of kids pick uh, achievements as their top priority and that empathy is caring is just not something they value. And the reason for that is really interesting because when they ask the kids what their parents and what their teachers value most, they said achievement, not caring. So that I find very interesting that we can talk and talk and talk and talk about achieve, about empathy and caring and compassion. Um, but if that's not what we're practicing uh, every day, then it doesn't get across. They're seeing, their kids are smart. They see what we really care about. I was lucky enough to work for a school, Crossroads Academy, that has a character education program that is not an add-on. That school was founded with a core knowledge program, core, um, a core um, character education program that is evenly balanced. And so the core character stuff, the character education, is a part of everything we do. When we talk about when I teach To Kill a Mockingbird, we talk about um, virtues and vices in the characters. And it's hard to find a vice with Atticus, but he's got one. And, you know, you, when you talk about it, when you integrate the empathy and the compassion with everything that kids do, it becomes something that, um, something that they learn we really value and that something that we take home with us. And when we admit that we're wrong in the classroom and we are honest with them and we follow through, they learn all that from us. So talking is not enough. Talking about empathy and compassion is nowhere near enough with kids. Did you hear, did you read about the ducks? The ducks, tell me about the ducks. <laughs> we had, um, at Crossroads, we had, we we're in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, right up near Dartmouth College. And we had a mama duck who uh, made a nest right next to the front door of the school. 
And at first we tried moving it and then we just, we realized uh, that was a disaster. You can't move duck nests. They'll abandon them. And it was full of eggs. It had, we didn't know how many, but it was full of eggs. So we moved it back near the front door and we put barriers around it. We realized we have 156 very curious kids. And the idea that she was going to be able to sit there for, I think it was 21 days. I can't remember, almost 30 days. Um, without the kids getting in her personal space, that was going to be a real challenge for them because she would get up and walk off um, the minute a kid came too close. And it was right next to the ramp that leads up to the front door. So even just walking by, she had to kind of get used to that. So we had to talk with the kids a lot about patience and about, um, you know, having empathy for that mom and how when those ducks hatch, we're going to get to see baby ducklings next to the front door of our school and that delayed gratification. We came up with all kinds of ways of talking about delayed gratification in the classroom and um, especially with the younger kids, like the first, second, third graders and the kindergartners. Uh, it was really hard to trust them to not get near the ducks and they all started to monitor each other. And the mother was allowed to sit on her ducklings and um, she would leave once a day and the kids would peek in on the eggs while she was gone, but never for very long. And at the end of it, every single egg hatched and they got to see the reward of all that patience and all that restraint and all that delayed gratification. There it was in those baby ducklings. And while I know it sounds hokey, but giving a first grader a duckling to look at at the end of 30 days or 21 days of restraint really teaches them that if you're patient and if you delay gratification, you can have something wonderful down the road. One of the things I've talked to the kids a lot about is that when that article, that how uh, parents, why parents need to let their children fail article came out, um, a journalist in Utah stole that article and published it in a paper as his own with his own 